0: Amen. Since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all cultures have believed that this was the end of days, that we were living in the last times, that Jesus would, some soon time, that he would return. And years and years later, actually several years from now, in the past, uh, there was this great theological movie called Joe Dirt that came out, and if you were since we're at church, we'll church it up and call it Joe Dirtay. And in doing that, Joe has this experience with these people, and he, he asks this guy who's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He says, "Is that what you want to be caught doing when Jesus comes back?" So it causes the guy to have this kind of like shock and awe at, "Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing?" And I think that's one of the major aims and questions that we're going to ask this morning is if Jesus is to return today or when Jesus returns, what do we want to be caught doing when that happens? Because it is going to happen. Peter is speaking to these people in 1 Peter, this what is now known as Turkey, to all of these churches that are in this area who are enduring great suffering because they continue to stand for Jesus. They continue to stand for the Gospel. As the current of the culture is heading in one direction, as we mention every week, the Gospel calls faithful believers to head in the opposite direction, knowing that their obedience and standing in that truth will bring suffering. And so in that, Peter continues this dialogue and this study of of asking and posing, man, what is it supposed to be like for us to be the people of God? To saturate our lives with the gospel so much that it not only affects our witness in the world, like we've seen with government over the last several weeks, or how we saw a few weeks ago about in our marriages, but that it also should saturate the way in which we exist as individuals and as the church so I want, to, I want us to see from the scripture today, because I think that's what it's pointing to, is man, what does God want us to do? What does He want to catch us doing when He returns? There in verse 7, look at what it says. It says, the end of all things is at hand. So chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your Prayers. So we see this again. The mindset is is that as believers in Jesus, we are constantly believing, and this is biblical that we are living at the end of time. That or the the return of Jesus, the theological term, there is imminent. That it is soon. That it could happen at any moment so knowing that jesus could come right now while we're standing here blow the trumpet if it's a rapture i guess get hoovered up if it's him coming to the earth whatever happens there happens but at the return of jesus it begs a question if we are longing for knowing at any moment jesus could return then how should we as believers be living Now, throughout history, Christians have responded in a variety of ways in regards to this. Some believing that Jesus could come, like today, at any moment, um, it led them to literally go live in a commune on the side of a mountain, kind of staring up at the sky doing absolutely nothing, just selling their junk, and then going and living out there and just staring at the stars. For other believers and followers of Jesus, they believe that that His return, that Jesus is returning. They do not know the time and the date. And yet it has no effect or bearing on their daily existence. The third way, which I think is the most biblical way, is that they believe that He is returning. They do not know the date and the time, yet they long and realize that God has given them a specific mission on the earth that they are to be carrying out while they wait for his return. So instead of becoming lazy and slothful in their work, they actively engage the culture with the gospel in all aspects. Let's face it, if we knew when Jesus was really going to come back, like next Sunday, let's say at 9.30, he was showing up, what would we do? Well, we would party to about Friday. Repent on Saturday and then wait until 9.30 to get here. that's probably what most of us would do we wouldn't actively change very very much so God in his sovereignty keeps us guessing we do not know this day we do not know this time and yet we have a mission to be living out while we actively wait This is not only an issue for us, this is also an issue for the early disciples. If you remember right back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has this exact same conversation with his disciples. He's been crucified, he's been buried, now he's been resurrected, he's been living with his followers, proclaiming the gospel, showing that he is the resurrected Lord. And then he tells them, hey, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says this in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. At his what we call the ascension, he's, this is what he says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you Why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. So Jesus gives them a commission. He says, go be my witnesses ultimately to the ends of the earth. He starts to get hoovered up, right? And and all of a sudden, what do the disciples are they found doing? They would have probably have stood there forever. Because we as sheep aren't very smart. So what does God sovereignly do? Sends two angels, two messengers to say, like, hey, dude, like, didn't he tell you to do something? Like, why are you standing on this mountain? But us, this is what we would be doing, having our phones out. i got to Google this. Let's see if this is real, all right? Be staring at our navels or belly buttons or, or something. I mean, and instead of going and doing what God is saying for them to do, they're they're called standing there until God reminds them. Immediately, they need to be reminded. This is what you're supposed to be doing. So then they go, and the Holy Spirit falls, in all of those things. See, the question is, are we going to obey, or are we going to stand while uh, stand around and wait and gaze into the heavens? See, the mission wasn't to stay. The mission. Was to go believing all the while that Jesus could return at any moment. When I was a college student, I was—I told you guys a story before. I was in my dorm room doing some things that I wasn't supposed to be doing, and at that time, I didn't know that Bowling Green had these tornado systems, the cows—if you've heard them there—to the, warn people that tornadoes were coming and. Right outside my dorm room, I did not know this, but there was one of those megaphones, and they were doing a test. Sun was shining. All of a sudden, in my dorm room, it sounded like a trumpet was blowing, and all I knew was the theology of my upbringing, and I literally thought the rapture was happening. I mean, I'm looking at my dorm room, the 308 North Room Hall, looking at my girlfriend. This is not good for us. Alright? We are not being hoovered up in this moment. We have missed it. Okay? Because the, the, the call is, it, is to believe it's going to happen. It could happen today. Lord Jesus, do it. And yet he has called us to go. Martin Luther was asked that question. If you knew that Jesus was coming back today, what would you do? He's like, I, I think I think he said I would buy a horse or a cow and pay my taxes. I would go about what I had planned to do, living missionally as I do those things. See, similar, we wait on the return of Jesus. We know that he is coming back, yet we do not know the date and the time, and yet the temptation is, is to just kind of let it be in the back of our minds. To push it way back, and for it to have no bearing effect on how you and I live every day. We miss it. We miss what He is calling us to and what He desires for us to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if the return of Jesus scares you to death, there's an issue somewhere in your heart. There's an issue somewhere in your relationship with Jesus. If, if you do not want Jesus to return because you are afraid of what you will miss out on this earth, then brothers and sisters in Christ, there is an issue within your heart. We should be longing for that day, while we engage in mission, because throughout the scripture, him or the scripture writers telling us that the return of Jesus is going to happen was always meant to increase hope and encourage the believer. We see this in Matthew 24, Romans 13, or 1 Corinthians 15, or Philippians chapter 4, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or 2 Peter chapter 3. It was always meant to instill within the believer deep hope and encouragement. So, again. Contextually, these people are surfe- uh, suffering. They are being, uh, visually physically persecuted. Right now, they're being socially, relationally persecuted. And Peter is speaking into them the hope of the return of Jesus, and this carried great weight amongst them. See, first Peter reminds them what, um, in the end of all things, is at hand. Be so- self-controlled and sober. Minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter tells us, again, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, sin, Satan, and death wants to dilute the gospel and its mission in our lives. See, one of the major issues with drunk people is they don't realize they're drunk. It causes them to not be able to understand and to think the way that they should and so he's speaking into us not to become intoxicated on the philosophies and the preaching and teachings of this world everyone on the planet is being discipled the question is whether they're being discipled by God and his word or being discipled by the culture and its waywardness but drunk people, they don't, they, they, they lose their consciousness so bad in being intoxicated that they don't even realize that they are drunk. They are daily, the scripture is reminding us here, to, to quit um, drinking daily on the truths of this culture. Yet we're constantly taking it in. If we're constantly taking in the things of this world, whether it's through the the music or the entertainment or or through the seeking of of money, power, wealth, popularity, any of those sorts of things, then we're constantly drinking from the kegger of this culture. And yet, then we say we we come to church for an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it may be, and, and that's the only Jesus and the only gospel that we get You will be controlled more by this culture than you will the truth of God's Word. A few years ago, I was at this event here in town, and um, they had some policemen, I think some state policemen come, maybe you've seen this before, but they had these little goggles. They're called like beer goggles or like drunk goggles that they put on kids, and so they'll put out a line of tape on the floor, and then they can slap these goggles on you, and it will give you the feeling of what it's like when people are drunk. So if you're just watching people do this, you know, normal, not abbreviated people, they put on these goggles, and you're sitting over here and you're watching it, and you're like, those fools. Surely they can walk a straight line. And that's true until you put on the goggles. Because see, putting on the goggles of this culture and seeing it and being intoxicated by the preachers and teachers of this world instead of the preachers and teachers of the gospel will distort your world view. It's the slow fade. It's the constant drift that we have been talking about. You'll begin to look like, smell like, act like, think like the people and in, in truths of this culture instead of the truths of the gospel. See? Intoxication influences your ability to think clearly. So Peter is warning them, do not become intoxicated on the things of this world because the intoxication of the things of this world is not only affecting you, but it is literally affecting your prayers. I mean, think about how many times that we pray and it sounds more like a a Christmas list than it really does the pursuit of God. Many of the, the Christian forefathers and mothers before us spent hours a day in prayer. When certain forefather was asked about his prayer life, he's like, man, aren't you really busy? He's like, yeah, on the days that I'm too busy to pray, I pray an extra hour. An extra hour. <laughs> like, he prayed two and three hours a day. I mean, this was consistent Christian life. And the scripture is telling us, go for it. The scripture is telling us that as the culture continues to oppress and oppress and oppress and oppress, our prayer life is going to be even more important to us. In view of Jesus' return, Peter continues with a profound statement that I think is actually pretty surprising. See, in view of the Gospel and the return of Jesus, look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. Above all, if you have your Bible, circle that. Above all, meaning before all things in order of importance. All right? So above all. He's talking about the return of Jesus. Now he says above all. So above all things that we should be involved in, above all things that we should be participating in, above all things that we should be obeying, what does he say? Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, so hospitality to one another without Grumbling. Notice again what he says there. We should be surprised by it. Because what does he say? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Who's the one another? The church. The church is the one another. The people of God. Mission church as being a part of the greater global body of Christ. That you as a participant, if we're going to be caught doing something, when Jesus returns, from a biblical standpoint, above all of the things it says for us to love earnestly the church. The church. If you know me very well for very long, you know that there are two theological passions that I have. One of those is the sovereignty of God. I'm unapologetic for it because it is because of that that I breathe. It's the Bible. It's what holds me in security and salvation and persevering is not relying on my own works but on the sovereign work of God's grace in my life. The second thing is is the church. Some guys are really into end times things. Some guys can speak Hebrew like they do it in their sleep. My two things, Sovereign Grace and the church. And in that, my heart for the church, I take things extremely personally. I do the same for my wife and my kids. See, if you're going to love Eric Baker, you've got to love Laura. If you don't love Laura, you're worthy of a throat punch. Okay? You've got to love my kids. If you don't love my kids, but you say that you love me, we have a problem. Because in order to love me, you've got to love my kids. And so when things happen in the church or don't happen within the church, I take those things extremely personally because when I use terminology such as you are my family, that is what I mean. So when people come against that or try to cause division within that, I take it personally, and so should you. Because we're family. Scripture says, Above all things, love one another earnestly. Love the church. Constantly love the church. Not a building, not a program, but a people. A people. Especially for us in Bowling Green, Kentucky, if you are here this morning, these people this group of people. See, Jesus speaking to Christians living in turbulent times, he says this in Matthew chapter 24, then they will deliver you up into tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations, be encouraged, for my name's sake, and then many will fall away. Alright, so, there are going to be a lot of people, I talked about this in my class, cultural Christianity, cultural religion, there are going to be lots of people that claim Jesus, And the culture is going to begin to oppress them. They're going to become against them. They're going to be hated by all the nations for whose namesake? Jesus' namesake. And what happens to many of these people that once proclaimed Jesus? And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will increase, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. As we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus, or as this cycle that seemingly happens throughout our history, as things get worse, then they have a tendency to get better, then they get worse. But in that cycle, that whenever we see an uprising of cultural oppression against Christians, The love amongst Christians as well, the temptation there, is for it to drift as well. So there becomes these inconsistencies, and yet the Scripture says as times get tougher... As we become more and more the minority, those of us who follow after Jesus, it is crucial as the return of Jesus comes and as cultural pressure comes, it is so important for us as a group of believers to draw closer and closer together though the temptation will be to get further and further and further apart, to forsake the gathering as Scripture would say. And yet it says not to do that. We will stop loving each other as much as we wanted to. And this is discussed throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, John chapter 13, and 1 John chapter 2. Believers must prioritize love for the church. And this is not some philosophical type of love. This is a deep passion, commitment, and covenant to the local body realizing that that is the connection to the global body we're to love each other earnestly and fervently in the greek the word earnestly there or fervently is a really interesting word picture that we get from that in the original language it is a picture of a person who is stretched out and they're in intense strain um They're an unceasing activity, which normally involves a degree of intensity and perseverance. It is a word used to describe a horse's legs being fully extended while galloping. In the medical field, it is used in describing the stretching of a runner's muscles to its limits to try to win the race. In essence, we are to be completely stretched out and laid out in love for one another in our congregation. It is a sacrificial love. It is another Greek word. An agape is an unconditional love that we have as the people of God. We are in constant tension. The tension within church isn't going anywhere. No matter what the name is on the outside. And yet Jesus calls us, the Holy Spirit calls us through the preaching and teaching of his word, to what? To love those people constantly. To live in the midst of that tension. Again, an illustration of that is marriage. There's constant tension. And it's not always ugly. But, I mean, later on, where are you going to eat? I don't know. Where are you going to eat? I don't know. I mean, that whole thing. Okay, constant tension where I want to do this, or I want to watch this. I want us to go on this vacation, or I, I want us to do these sorts of things. You're, you're constantly in tension, and that doesn't mean that it's always an argument or that you hate each other. But love, true love, committed love, constantly lives in the tension of denying oneself in honor and glory to the good of another. It is sacrificial. It is unconditional. The love that declares I am all in. Look around this room. Do you love the person sitting across the aisle unconditionally? Sacrificially. Like you love, you don't love till it just hurts. You love something until it heals itself. You give it all. You sacrifice everything for them. For this community of believers. And as time gets tougher and tougher, that will be more, even more important. What does he tell in that passage in verse nine? Love covers a multitude of sin. See what I've noticed in church, because I'm going to tell you, as much as I love the church, the church has caused me great harm. Great hurt. It is a frustrating thing to love something so much and for it to cause you so much hurt. And yet, that is what God has called us to do. See, typically, people are cool with being a part of church until they realize somebody screwed up somewhere. Or the pastor screwed up somewhere. Or somebody else ticked them off across the aisle. They sinned. So we're good until we start dealing with the messiness of sin and we start dealing with the messiness of sin, then I'm out. And then what is the call of the Gospel? The call of the Gospel is to stay put. The call of the Gospel is to love. It is a supernatural love. This love is given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You love God, and if you truly love God and He is deeply rooted in you, then you will love the local church and commit yourself to one of them. For the long haul. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time that you need to leave the church. There are sin issues that if if you're actually loving that church, though, and loving those pastors, you will come, you will address, you will spend time there, you will labor there, you will address those issues, you will have biblical conversations, but dropping the mic, Kanye, and walking off the stage and going down the road to somewhere else is unbiblical. It doesn't say anything about the church as much as it says about those people who do that. Because from a biblical standpoint, you stay. You work. You labor through it. There are other situations, though, where you get sent from a place and from a church. That's a, that's a biblical mindset behind those things. That's not leaving because you don't like something. But there is a also a sending out of God's people to work in those places. See, a lot of times, and because of our culture... When love is an emotion, right, students? I mean, love is an emotion. And that's our culture, and that's what it preaches, and that's what it teaches, and that is the gospel that people believe, is that love is some sort of emotion. And you stick with it until you've lost that that loving feeling. Whoa, 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 all right? And our culture is, is that we live in this sort of place. man, is that If you love your job and then you stop loving your job, what do you do? You go get another one. Right? If if, if if you lost that loving feeling for your husband or wife, you trade her in. Get another one. And the same thing is true for the church. And if you don't have that ooey gooey feeling and you don't come in here and they sing songs and you get the Holy Ghost chill bumps and you don't happen anymore or you just don't really love the pastor, I'm telling you, if you stick around here long enough, I'm going to offend you. But you know what this is awesome? Is that all of you have offended me. And so it's 50 against 2. Alright? I love Justin. Pastor Justin. But he's offended me. I know I've offended him. Okay? Stick around because the thing is, is if you go somewhere else, the same thing is going to be there. Your your hope and your security is not in another location. Your hope and security is in Christ and working through these things. Love is not an emotion. True love is a choice that outside of biblical grounds, moving or being sent out, I'm choosing to love this group of people. I choose to love this church. It's pastors. It's servants. Even the person that that gets on my nerves. Even uh, the person that does things that I don't like. Even if the congregation that has all the, the bells and whistles is that I choose to love them. Even if the church changes. But I'm here to tell you, if Laura left, at, you know, was guaranteed that I was going to look the exact same way from the day we got married to the day we died, she left. Alright? There was change that took place in this. Alright? Same thing within Church. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't like that church anymore. They got cellulite in all the wrong places, and I'm out. All right? I mean, how ridiculous is that to be picking out the flaws instead of contributing it to its healing? I know that struggle. I've been there. I've sat where you have sat, feeling those emotions, struggling with those things. And yet, love, true love gospel-centered love, Holy Spirit love, wills us to choose to covenant and commit above all other things. This week I was just sitting there surprised. Like, if Jesus is to return, I figured He'd want me to be like, preaching! You know? Doing mission work somewhere. Walking on water like I'm known to do. I mean, all those things. And yet, that's not what He says to do above all things, love one another. Love the church. Love the church. Man, I'm deeply concerned. In a culture that has influenced a church culture, we're being non-committed, refusing to become a member, hopping from place to place, getting upset when you don't get your way. That people are comfortable with just going somewhere else. Pastorally, this sounds so much more like the world than it does the Scripture. See, ladies and gentlemen, the church, even with all of her screw-ups, even with all of her inconsistencies, Jesus died for the church. Knowing she was with lots of spots Lots of wrinkles. The, the church's dress was dirty. She was not pure. She is not holy. She is not glorious. Yet what does Jesus do as the great groom comes and cleanses her, makes her pure, makes her white as so though He dies for her and her imperfections he looks at her unable to stay with her commitment to him and yet he is willing to die naked upon a cross to drink the full wrath of god for yes individuals but more importantly those individuals who come together collectively as the church the people of god this is who he is willing to fight for this is who is willing to die for, an imperfect bride. And so should we. The God gospel calls us to love even when it's not reciprocated by the other people sitting across the aisle. The church is not a building. The church is a people that we belong to. God does not love the future version of Mission Church. God loves Mission Church just the way that she is. God doesn't love the future version of you. God loves you just the way that you are and yet refuses to leave you in that state. In the same way, He loves missing church with all of her issues and all of her glory as well. And yet refuses to leave her in that position. And I love this quote from, I think it's Jonathan Lehman. He says this, Yet there's a temptation, I've noticed, that you and I are susceptible to. We can love our vision of what the church should be more than we love the people who compose it. We can be like the unmarried man who loves the idea of a wife. You see this in single guys all the time. Man, I just need a wife. I just need a wife. And then the week later after the honeymoon, he's like, I don't need her anymore. All right, He loves the idea of a wife. All right? She loves the idea, I need a husband. Everybody around me is dating some dude, I need one. Then you realize like, he doesn't put the seat down and leaves his underwear everywhere. right? So he marries a real woman and finds out it's harder to love her than the idea of her. Or like the mother who loves her dream of the perfect daughter more than the daughter herself when Christ died for the church he made it his own he identified it with himself he put his name on it that's why persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus Acts chapter 9 this is why sinning against an individual Christian is sinning against Christ 1 Corinthians chapter 8 think about what that means it means that Christ has put his name on immature Christians are you glad of that? for you I'm glad of that Just so you know. I'm glad of that. See, that was an immature statement. You didn't even catch it. Right? Like, I'm glad that God loves immature Christians. And Christians who speak too much at members' meetings. We all know that guy. And Christians who wrongly give their unbaptized children communion. Have you ever seen that before? Like baby, fresh out of the womb. Communion Day. And they're shoving juice and bread in its mouth. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's weird. God loves them. And Christians who love shallow praise songs. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness he loves those people. Christ has identified himself with Christians whose theology is underdeveloped and imperfect. Christ points to the Christians who wrongly oppose biblical leadership structures. And the practice of church discipline and says, they represent me. Sin against them and you sin against me. How wide, how long, how high and deep is Christ's love is for us. It covers a multitude of sin embraces the sinner. Actually, it doesn't just embrace the sinner. It places the whole weight of Christ's own identity and glory on the sinner. My name will rest on them and my glory will be theirs. In verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, the community of faith, the church, is not about what you can get from it, but what you can give to it. That's tweetable. Write that down. Alright? The the community of faith, the church, is not about what you can get from it, but it's about what you can give to it. Love is not self-serving, but serves others. See, so if you serve someone to get something from them, that's called manipulation. They will worship you for it. Like if you do the dishes, husbands, to get kisses later, that is not love. That's manipulation. All right? Love is not self-serving. It's serving of others. Um, Hospitality is one of the marks of true Christianity. It's this idea of opening up your home, your resources, your life, your community of faith. Need an egg? Here you go. Need a ride to church? Here you go. Need a power drill? A pressure washer? Need someone to talk to or a place to stay? That you open up the doors of your time, talent, and treasure and you say, as a brother and sister in Christ, you are welcome to all of this. To all of this. So that means every dime of your money is really God's. Your house is not just a sanctuary for you, but it is a sanctuary for all people. Your time is not just trying to figure out your calendar. If all the planets align, then you can finally spend some time with some other Christians. The reality is, is all of my time is God's. And so in all of that time, I need to be figuring out how I can be loving one another. With that. See, the, the, the Scripture calls the church to this type of lifestyle. In a culture that is greedy and self-centered, we are constantly fighting this in our culture, but also in the American church. Notice it says to serve without grumbling. Man, that's tough. To serve without grumbling. Come to MC on Wednesday night, and you're like, "Hmm." Don't they know this is a meal? Look at those bag of chips somebody bought. Oh, there wasn't enough meatballs, Brian. Brian should have brought more meatballs. I was the last one in line this week, and I didn't get any of them, and I'm taking Brian in later. Bring the meatballs, right? You know, I think of Mandy, she makes these like rose petal ham, Whew, hallelujah, Whew, praise him. I'm about to do a Holy Spirit jig up here, speaking in tongues, sell my Honda, something. Them brothers are awesome. <laughs> okay? I can't believe she doesn't bring those every week. Man, <laughs> I'm the only one that does anything around this joint. We're the only people that serve. Now, should there be some expectations? Yes, because I want you to know, when you don't show up to serve, it affects us all. Every one of us. Wow, because we're family. What if dad never shows up? Does that a cause a problem in your house? It does in the beggars. What if mom never shows up? It causes an issue. It causes a problem. See, the enemy wants to destroy the church from the inside out. I'm much more of a concern for the devil that shows up here every week than I am the devil that has played out on the news about how it hates the church. We've got to be aware of that. See, since Satan and death wants us to become frustrated with each other. I know this because I I there is a righteous frustration that we should have, and there is an unrighteous one. And a lot of times the unrighteous frustration that happens between us has a tendency to win out. And I pray that God would change that. See, I, I don't think that Peter is saying that we need to ignore issues. I'm saying that as Christians, shouldn't we respond within church to tensions and conflicts or joys and celebrations like Christians? That's all we're asking. See, this week I was talking to a pastor that I have great respect for. Over the last several months, they've had thousands of dollars stolen from them. But probably upwards to $100,000. I looked at this man, and I not just put on the church hat, and I want you to know this is not me, this, it's just Jesus. But I looked at him, deeply grieved by this. And I said, man, I want you to know, your hurt is my hurt. Because I love you. And I love your church. And you're our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no way that I would gloat and have joy in the issues that are taking place at your church. And other churches and pastors that would do that, shame on them. We need to repent when you do that. When you hear that the church down the road is having major issues or is causing a split or division or could close, and you celebrate because you don't like the way that they do it, and shame on us. Shame on us. Without grumbling and complaining. In the book, Everyday Church, it says this, we often talk a good church. When, excuse me. We often talk of a good church. When people move to a new area, we may commend a local church as a good church. But what criteria do we use to make such an assessment? Preaching? Youth work? Music? For Peter, a good church is characterized by love, compassion, forgiveness, generosity, service, and grace. The preaching may be eloquent and biblical, But if that is the primary characteristic, then the church is merely a good preaching center. The music may be stirring and skilled, but if if that is the primary characteristic, then the church is merely a good worship center. A good church is a church in which the believers share their lives together as an alternative and authentic society. Such a church will be well-resourced because no one ever holds what he has or who he is. Uh, what he asks with a clenched fist. Just as a flower unfolds before the warmth of light in the sun, so our hands open as they're exposed to the grace of God in Christ. Grace produces grace, which is why gospel community can only be a community of open-handed, undeserved generosity. Cheerful hospitality will take place only when we know that nothing we have is our own. Everything we have has been given to us so that others might be blessed. Mission Church, if we never grow a mile wide, but that defines us, then I want you to know, this pastor can die good and well, believing wholly that this was an awesome ride. For now, 14 years and 19, since I was, when I was 19 years old and I became a Christian, I've longed to be a part of that community. That kind of church. That kind of community. See, God is and his church is not after our begrudging submission. It is out and after our joy. Because we love God, we love the church not out of duty, but out of love. Verse 10. As each of you has received a gift, use it, one another, as God, as good stewards of God's very grace. See, Peter continues here and he says, okay, I'm going to show you how to love each other. As I have gifted you, some of you have multiple gifts, but everybody that is a Christian has a spiritual gift. And if you truly love us, then you use that spiritual gift as a whole. As your pastor, some of you guys think I need to be a really good biblical teacher. Others of you think, man, a real pastor shepherds his people. That means he's really good in hospitals. He can pray over you while he's sick. Others of you think, man, he needs to be a really good teacher, that he can dissect the the Greek and the Hebrew and really teach you and communicate things to you. Some of you think, man, that the pastor really needs to be a CEO type of leader. And I want you to know, there's not a pastor in the world that is all of those things. That's why we believe in a plurality of elders, for one. There should be multiple men leading our church pastoring our church that bring those giftedness but even more so they rest in this room in you I am one cog in the wheel Pastor Justin, one cog in the wheel God has gifted you if you are truly saved with a spiritual gift and we should be sharing that and using that as stewards of God's grace so he's given you something God has given you something supernaturally You don't ask for it. He gives it to you. He imputes it to you and then calls you to steward that where? Within the church. Within the church. As I was attempting to run sound today, because our sound guys are sick, I was peering through this back door and I started ugly crying back there. I'm glad y'all didn't see me. Because I could peer through that back door into the library you know what I saw? I saw Cynthia Luella dancing with my daughter dancing with your daughter to the praise and worship songs that are in there playing for those kids Cynthia is one of our oldest members she's in her early 60's she was in there and I pulled Justin I said this is why we do what we do this is why we serve like what we serve It's because of people like Cynthia Llewellyn, who was in there in her early 60s. We didn't hear any music, but all we saw was her doing something like this, and Ava's over there going. And whatever Ava was doing and Kalina was doing, there was one of the oldest members of our church clucking, doing ballerina moves to praise and worship songs. Good day today. That's the sermon. I guarantee you Cynthia doesn't wake up with Mike drinking coffee going <laughs> Cynthia loves the gospel Cynthia loves the mission and vision of this church Cynthia loves our kids she's willing to lay it on the line and look undignified and foolish so that those kids will get it And that's what we all need to do. Sometimes that's uncomfortable. Sometimes it hurts. People in church will disappoint you. Sometimes you'll feel like you're the only one doing things. And yet he has called us to lay it all out, not in begrudging submission, but in joy. We have been given a gift. You know, Cynthia used to be a school teacher. Now she teaches kids. I've been public speaking my entire life. I sucked at basketball, football, Tiddlywinks, Uno, any game with spelling. You win. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 shoe in. I used to competitively speak in this state. was a state champion. It's my claim to fame. Then God saved me. Why is it any question that this is what I do? I grew up in a church, not a Christian, but from that time, my parents were putting me up front. you got to sing that song. Father Abraham, <laughs> if any sons, And any sons. All right? Read that scripture. For God so loved the world. And He gave His only begotten Son. I start going competitively. Jesus saves me. Tells me to marry that woman. Calls me to disciple men. Tells me to be a pastor and to preach the gospel. And that's what I do. And it's not always easy. But if I don't do this, again, again, My nature is, is I want to move to Alaska, live off the grid, away from all of you. With my wife and my kids. That's my nature. That's what I want to do. But God has called me and gifted me to preach the gospel. So this is why I come out of my hermit crab every week on a Sunday morning to come do this. That's why I go to campus to teach a class to 25 crazy college students. You definitely need Jesus. It's because this is what God's gift me at. I wish he had gifted me at being alone. <laughs> or oh, with one woman. <laughs> <laughs> with my wife. Sorry. Let me clarify. Finally got y'all to wake up. Y'all are like, amen. Um, oh, what? No. Gift serve. When I was in Arizona, I'll tell a story about Kevin. Kevin, God has graced him with the ability, I tell him, every time he touches something it turns to gold. He works for a company. God has graced him. And he either is a really good liar, or this stuff really happens to him. And he's so good at lying, I can't tell the difference. But it's true, I guess, that's James here. That man handles numbers he, uh, he looks at big budgets and all that sort of stuff. And I was in Arizona. I was like, dude, I'd never want to touch any of this. Because it was his natural giftedness. He used that giftedness within the church. He handled that. But he was gifted at that. God had graced him and he was gracing that with us and for us. I have a huge heart for the poor and the oppressed I'm going to be really honest I have no idea how to reach them but God has brought a guy like Brian Lewis to our church and that's what he does every day and makes sure that I don't screw up because my natural tendency is just like yours is if you see somebody that's poor and hungry you just give them food right? because that's a good Christian thing to do and I've learned there's way more to that and sometimes helping hurts there's a great book by that title that he gave me remember you're way smarter you've been gifted to do that you need to do it you need to serve in the way that God has gifted you this diversity is a beautiful thing he tells us there in verse 11 whoever speaks do it as one who speaks as the oracles of God that means whatever I have is speaking a speaking gift Ren. I wish I could sing like brother Ren over here alright brother can sing he can play it's his passion though and he can do it well. That's a speaking gift. Most of the scriptures uh, talking about spiritual giftedness is kind of broken it up into two categories. One of those are speaking gifts, like what I'm doing right now. Singing, I think, goes underneath that, because not everybody who thinks they can lead worship can, because they can't sing. All right. Speaking type of gifts, service sort of gifting. So he's saying that if I speak, he plays and sings, that we should be doing that. As the, the We should speak what God would have us to speak. And don't add to it. And don't take away from it. But speak with God's authority. Speak from what the Scripture says, not our personal opinion about that. Sing, not for the glory of self, diva worshipers. We all know diva worship leaders. It's all about them. Believe Faithfully sing unto the Lord the things of God. Apostleship, prophecy, teaching, tongues, exhortation, serving gifts, giving, leading, mercy, helping, uh, helps, um, healing, miracles. And what does he say for the people that serve in those capacities? Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The great thing is is every Sunday morning when I get up about before the crack of dawn, and you are on my mind. And this passage and these scriptures are on my mind. Now I'm thinking about what is God going to do today. What continues to allow me to do this every week is realizing if I do this in my own strength or for my own glory, I'm going to fail miserably. If you serve out for your own glory. See, I, I have a mis- I sin every Sunday afternoon and you don't know that. Because when I walk away from here, as soon as I start thinking, man, that that was a humdinger. I knocked it out of the park on that one. Or, if I walk away from here going, that was terrible. That was awful. Then I've just made it about me. And God is calling us to make it all about Him. Whether you serve in children's ministry, whether you do sound, whether you help set up, whether you go on Tuesday to help volunteer here or to do this or to lead to MC or to go to MC, any of those sorts of things, let's make it about God. And how do we know that in conclusion here? 11b says what? What should we do all these things for? 11b, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, not to Eric, not to Brian, not to Ren, not to Kevin, not to Laura, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let it be. So it is. See, all of this comes back to the mission and vision of Mission Church, and ultimately that is to worship. Jesus. And he's telling us as we seek, look long for the return of Jesus, we have a work to do. That work is to be fervent in prayer, fervent in proclamation, fervent in our love. For the church, engaging in that mission, and what is the result of us serving and gifting each other with the the grace and the measures of grace that we have been given is that we go forward in the worship and adoration of God. And when the church does that, he multiplies it. He grows it. Disciples are made. So don't make church about something other than the worship of Jesus. We love because we love Jesus. We serve because we serve Jesus. And the result of that is a community that can withstand the culture that is continually to oppress and to come against. Do you worship that Jesus? Is it evident every day of your life are you drunk on the things of this world, or as the scripture says, be filled, be drunk in the Holy Spirit? Do you see the world through the the you know beer goggles of this culture, or do you see the world through the gospel? Do you serve one another in hoping that, man, if I hope you put up a fence, maybe next week you'll help me cut down some trees, or do you serve? appreciating the way that God has gifted you specifically, and you give that all for the local body, your local church. Will you love unconditionally the brothers and sisters sitting next to you in this place? Will you love the brother and sister down the road and our sisters at at Burt Memorial and Living Hope and Hillview and Crossland and and Eastwood and Greenwood Baptist Church and Bethany who's looking for a pastor or Clear Fort Baptist way out in the boonies wherever it is that you love them. When they succeed, you rejoice with them. When they are failing or struggling, you pray and grieve for them because we are the, the church and it is for His glory. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You, God.